City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and that was that was Acres and Acres of Tar and Cement, and I, Corey, I thought Corey was going to speak, but she's still dancing around the studio to the music, but she'll settle down and sort herself out. That's Corey Green over there, I'm Kevin Healy, we've also got Ronnie Caretti in the studio, we're going to go to him in a moment, but it's the fourth Wednesday of the month, and we're going to do another one of our series on what, what comprises an, a sustainable or healthy city. And today we're going to talk to Dr Fiona Armstrong, who's um, a member of the Doctors for the Environment, but also for the, um, whatever it's called. Climate the and Health Alliance. Climate and Health Alliance, that's it. Thanks for saving me looking it up there, Corey. And um, we're going to chat away to Fiona about that issue, and we'll do a couple of more on this um, subject in the next few weeks. In fact, on the fourth Wednesday next month, we've got uh, Professor Carolyn Witzman lined up from Melbourne, who also does a lot of work on health in cities, etc. So... That's coming up, and we're going to be talking also, just to complete that, somewhere in the next few weeks, we haven't got a date set yet, to um, Pam Morgan, the former, formerly the manager of the Children's Farm in Collingwood, and who's done a lot of work and does a lot of work on urban gardens and, um, and sustainability, etc., in that area. And she's spent a lot of time in Cuba setting up those programs there. So we'll have her on as well talking about those issues. Corey, so there we are. That's uh, today's program. We're going to go to Fiona about 9.20. But as I mentioned, Ronnie Karenny's in the studio. Ronnie, of course, um, is, is a member of staff here at 3CR, and he's also an activist, of course, one of the many activists on the West Papua issue. And I just got wanted to ask you to stay in the studio, Ronnie, and I'll pour a cup of tea while you're doing that, by the way. So yeah, why not? Although it's harder to hear on these microphones, the pouring, it's a bloody nuisance. But anyway, Ronnie, uh, last Friday there was a, a, a an event at Trades Hall where uh, Trades Hall and the West Papua movement got together. What, what's it mean? Yes, yeah, so last Friday that meeting, basically it's a signing ceremony and and to see the ACTU move the Australian government policy on special autonomy to self-determination. And that is a very historic event where the Federal Republic of West Papua, Jacob Rumbiak, renewed this ceremony, um, the MOU especially, that was signed back in 2000. And And given with the timing of the issue of West Papua where we've seen there is an increased support. It is also very significant to get the trade unions to come on board and push Australian government on its policy that all this time they've been supporting Indonesia, stand on the special autonomy which has failed the people of West Papua over a decade now. And so that was one of the um, significance of that signing ceremony to recognize West Papua's self-determination. Is there anything going to the Congress this week on it, the ACTU Congress, do you know? Not in public, but because when that uh, meeting took place, there was Im- immense pressure from the Indonesian government behind closed door, contacting ACTU office, even um, various different union groups and as um, Len Cooper from CWU. He's with the uh, Telecommunications Union. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Telecommunications Union. Um, he even got a contact, and um, they were trying to stop that um, 
signing ceremony. And so we can see that it's not going to be a public thing. This is a fo specific focus lobby that um, we want the um, the trade unions to pursue this further with the Australian government mm. and to look at the um, the policy, especially on West Papua. Because I just like this morning on the Bricky show when um, uh, White, your name White, Chris White, Chris White uh, was speaking. He made the point that, and has been in the papers, that the ACTU is asking now for a continue, even when the Labor government comes in, to continue the campaign. Because last time they let it go, and Labor really didn't do much to change the thing at all. And I was wondering whether the site, you know, probably worth pursuing the same thing. If, if the Labor government gets in, the union movement should be pushing hard for them to change their policy and support West Papua. Well, you're on the right track, but um, yeah, that is the, the vision um, in that, you know, that signing um, the ceremony that we did. Um, and as, you know, without letting the cat out of the bag that is basically <laughs> you're pretty much yeah on the right track what's that cat doing running across the studio there? yeah <laughs> activating the airwaves <laughs> um, historically um, before 1975 and before Australia recognised um, China as a legitimate state was, what was their union's role in that did they recognise China before the Australian government yes yes and was that very successful? Uh, I think other factors came in. I think China got recognised because it was growing, it was bigger, it was a market, all sorts of things happened. Um, I knew he even had Nixon going to China, I mean, and Whitlam, I mean, went there, of course. But no, I think um, I think other factors came in, which West Papua hasn't got, because West Papua is never going to be a major economic factor in the world, I think it's fair enough to say. And what it has got, overseas companies run and exploit and pollute with. So, you know, it's... Uh, even the wealth they have got, the people don't see. Well, actually, like in 1939, the U.S. already knew the rich resources. And leading up to the end of World War II and into the Cold War period, the CIA masterminded a conflict within Indonesia in '65, in which led to half, you know, reported as half a million um, of the Communist Party and, you know, left-wing Indonesians um, being killed and tortured in 65. Yeah. But that was millions just... Millions of them. Millions, yes. But that was a stepping stone into um, what they wanted to occupy in West Papua. And that was all US-led um, kind of like vision in going into Indonesia and using the military to run that coup and use military to occupy West Papua, which, you know, in history, which mm. comes to 60, early 62, uh, an agreement and the fraud referendum in 69 and they, f they did try to get into um, PNG but of course at the time with um, Papua New Guinea administered PNG and so there were some agreement behind those clusters. It was called a trust territory but yeah. Australia treated it as its own property of course. Which even now yeah. look at well, what happened in Bougainville. Still does, yeah, yeah. It was a trust territory because in fact that Germany had occupied Bougainville but yeah. also um, the UN was supposedly administering Papua New Guinea and Australia was put in charge to, as a trust territory. And uh, But it, I, when I went there, um, clearly it was just the most awful colonialism. And, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. And yeah. with this um, agreement with the trade unions, have you managed to get them to um, make sort of agreements about um, practical things they'll give you, like work bans or money? or? Well, basically now it's... We are preparing, like, you know, our issue, especially with West Papua, the independence is what the Papuans want. But in order to 
get the practical support from the trade unions, we have to have an infrastructure, a system in place as a as a um, as a nation state, which at this stage it's just an embryonic nation state. So we ha- wanted to see that a lot of the royalties that the indigenous people around the mining area, like in Freeport, McMoran, there is a fund that goes back to support the indigenous community, the local people around there, rather than go straight to the Indonesian government. And so we that is one of the things that we'll be pushing um, forward in terms of um, the royalties and how practically the union could look at the framework that could uh, best save the indigenous people and then also looking at the you know environmental hazards around the mining. But one thing that is very much like a short-term practical support where we did mention that there, you know, the Labour's position on um, West Papua, especially with the self, uh, the special autonomy. And we know that there is a um, Labour conference coming up and also using that as, as a springboard to pressure the Australian government at the Pacific Island Forum to put West Papua um, on the agenda as well. So that is one thing that... Um, in the timing of it, that's where we want to um, get Well, there's the no changes. way a Liberal government's going to do that with Indonesia putting pressure on, but the ACT is going to put pressure on Labor to put pressure on and, not, and, and hope that influence is stronger than Indonesia's influence on the other side, I guess. Yeah, mm. yeah. With Labor conferences, yeah. the real trick is making sure they have a, a binding agreement. That's right. And um, we're following... We went with that one before. Yeah, so we're following it up again, actually, today um, with like all the different unions because they're having this um, congress today, um, this week. But yeah, we're going in there and actually looking at their, um, the objectives that we, what we want um, the trade unions to act upon. And so we kind of like finalize that and action it um, very soon as well. And so there's going to be a lot of um, work behind the scenes to get all this together and yeah. So one of my worst running jokes on the week that was a few years ago was uh, when Gareth Evans was being so dreadful in his appeasement of Indonesia over East Timor, and uh, he used to record, he used to call it the the jure recognition, the jure recognition of Indonesia's occupation, and my very bad joke was the jure in the crown is the oil in the ocean, <laughs> um, which was uh, which was very true. Very true. Yep. Yeah, all right, well, now you can go. We'll get rid of you now. All right. Yeah. No, Thank I have you. another oh. question. Oh, you yeah. have another question? Oh, no, Don't go yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I think it's it's um, interesting um, drawing parallels between what you're doing with the trade union and also what the um, Australian Indigenous um, Sovereignty Movement is doing with the trade unions, like with the Redfern Tent Embassy in very, yes. very similar talks sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. No, that's amazing to see the um, yesterday the... The MUA came in in support, and mm. that's exactly um, what we're building as well, especially with the First Nation as well, Arm um, Liberation. And you probably ha- heard already about the Freedom Flotilla. Mm-hmm. And so, mm. <coughs> yeah, that is another angle in focusing in, um, you know, looking at these um, big multi-corporations um, that are um, raping the land out of the, you know, the lung of, the people in West Papua, especially the land, and so highlighting that that as well. But this time we're working with the um, anti-June mills in Darwin, and so this is great that 
she has been um, also communicating with different aunties around Australia, um, different ten embassy, Aboriginal ten embassies and elders to come. There's a forum in July that will um, gather that, and the trade unions, especially the MUA up in Darwin, are fully supporting it as well. Mm, that's yeah. awesome. Do you um, do you take lessons from the formation of the Irish state? Well, it's always good to take lessons, definitely. Mm. Um, yeah, and looking at you know what's the best, um, you know, whatever that they've established and the good things that we learn from there. And given with like you know uh, what happened with Timor as well, mm. um, how the structure, the governance structure, where um, they also have like you know in place of the queen. As the head of state, they have the tribal council, and that is one thing that I, in Papua we we wanted to maintain um, the balance between the traditional um, pr- um, law and also the Western systems, where both can really serve the interest of the local rather than it's all the Western system that come in and then takes over and then people try to adopt, which mm. makes it very difficult. And, and we've seen and it also it dramatically changes the local structure, the local social structure. Uh, the, the sustainable living structure, all those things um, just get wiped out. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the region, Vanuatu has been very effective in using the the social structure, especially the traditional council, the tribal council. So they are the highest in any decision-making. So the, the, the executive government are also kind of like, you know, being advised by the tri- tribal council. And if the tribal council speaks... Even a political leader, the prime minister listens, mm-hmm. and so you know there you know there is that balance and respect in both um, systems. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yeah, because with the formation of the Irish state, they soon found that you know the English co-opted the Irish leaders into running English capitalism for them, and you know, it, mm. I guess it's a. I think South Africa is a good example where economically the, the those who always run the economy still run the economy. Mm. And, you mm. know, many, the vast majority of blacks are still incredibly poor. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and interestingly, um, we will see what's happening with Fiji, given, um, like, not many people really um, follow what's actually happening on the ground, where the Prime Minister, Baini Marama, um, any foreign investors coming into Fiji to, you know, for tourism or other interests, they have to have signed a contract with the indigenous people of the land and of that area. So if, for example, you wanted to um, run a hotel or, uh, you know, you have to come and sign lease at least two, 12 months or 24 months with those in indigenous people, and they are the ones that will, you know, receive the benefit, and then when they feel like, oh, no, things are not working out well, then... Mm. They'll give you the sack. Well, Bougainville was a good example where people said piss off to the mine company and yeah. piss them off. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Except, um, of course, the, the, the central government then went and invaded them, but that's another question. We were supported by Australia, incidentally. But they, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The, the sand line. Yeah. And Australia, Australia only liberated East Timor to get their oil. Yes, that joke you just said. <laughs> yeah. The jury in the crowd. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So you know, I don't know. That's that's it's a very uh, interesting one with East Timor. I think, you know, all those years they were crying out for help, and then Australia realised, oh, we can steal something from them. Yes, we're we're going to charge in on our white horses. Oh, there was the famous photo of Gareth and Ali Alitas and Peter Cook. The uh, was it Peter Cook? His name wasn't it? Yes. Um, 
the former so-called left-wing ACTU vice-president, who, uh, who was a senator at the time, minister for trade, and their, their minister for trade, that famous photo, champagne, smiling, toasting, signing East Timor's oil over to the world oil companies by Indonesia and Australia combined in a plane over the oil. <laughs> um, you know, it's a famous photo. There you go. If yeah. you can find a, um, a, a ruling power who wants your resources, maybe you can get rid of Indonesia and get new rulers. Well, yes, until there is a reformation within the military system, like, yeah, in, within Indonesia, nothing will change because it's a military-run um, state. And and it's great that there is a shift within Indonesia, the progressives and even from the left-wing movement. And we've seen that last week, um, a national move, um demo actually an action that happens throughout Indonesia including in West Papua other parts of Indonesia where they occupied you know places and it was um, organized by students mm. and so this has kind of like you know really um, reactivate the you know what mm. <coughs> Indonesia they felt that you know the military is running the state and so you know there is a revolution happening in Indonesia yes. as we speak as well yeah all right, got to go now because it's time. But uh, okay, well, thanks for that, Ronnie. Um, Thank you. We'll go okay. to a song. <coughs> Get your usual pay, a cup of tea. <laughs> yep, I enjoyed this. It's it's only on city limits that you get a cup of tea during it's the wonderful, show. Wonderful, isn't it? Wonderful. Okay, so thanks, Ronnie, for your time. It's been thanks, great. Kevin. Okay. Thanks, Corey. Okay, we're going to go to Dead Press with Police State. You're listening to City Limits on. 3CR, 8.55am, or maybe you're listening through our website, 3cr.org.au. We have Fiona Armstrong on the line. Yes, and Fiona's good. from... Oh, go on. Tell us where she's from. Good morning. How are you? Oh, good. How are you? Very well, thank you. And you're in Newcastle today. I am in Newcastle. Ah. Have you gone down to the beach? No, not yet, although it's quite a nice day. I caught a glimpse of sand on my way in, but I don't think I'll get there. I'm here to talk to investors about coal. Oh. Yes, can we just kick off with that, perhaps, Fiona? Just ask you, um, you know, what sure. the group you're talking to and uh, what, what hopes you've got of influencing them. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I'm here to address a field trip of investors that's been organised by the Responsible Investors Association of Australia. So it's my understanding that there's some um, people from that group who are interested in um, understanding what uh, risks there are from investing in assets such as coal. So um, we're here to talk to them about a report that we put out um, from the Climate and Health Alliance on coal and health in the Hunter earlier this year, which looks at the local, regional and global impacts associated with coal. And, um, And what that finds is really what we already know is that there's a very extensive international literature which shows that every phase of the life cycle of the coal production cycle is harmful to health. Um, and that it's a major contributor to climate change, which is itself a major risk to health. And, um, well, yeah, what do, you, do, you, do you think you can influence them? I mean, in that part of the world, coal's pretty important to their economy, I imagine. Well, it is an important part of the economy, and it has been, but I think um, most people recognise, and certainly investors, I think financial institutions in particular recognise that coal is a stranded, potentially a stranded asset, that um, with the introduction of a carbon price, increasingly 
internationally and um, and in many nations the cost of production and the value of coal is um, is not going to make for a reasonable investment and um, if we know from you know the advice of scientists that the bulk of fossil fuels that are held in um, reserves by companies around the world uh, right now can't be burnt if we're to avoid breaching the two degree guardrail and, um, and we know that that in itself is 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 too high. So really, the reality is that beginning to hit, I think, um, financial institutional investors and, and and governments to a certain extent is that we can't continue to burn coal. That we have to rapidly transition to somewhere something else. And I think that's why we're seeing a massive investment in renewable energy and um, internationally and and falling coal coal prices. And I think you know we're just this morning seeing more um, people being laid off from coal mines. So, you know, that industry is very much on the way out and um, it makes sense to ensure that communities that are dependent on it and um, um, make a transition and that governments are putting in place transition plans to help those communities um, make sure that they've got a strong economic base into the future. Despite the screams here about ANU, I noticed the Norwegian investment fund is, has again come out and said they're going to again divest further from coal. There's Stanford University. Oxford came out this week and said it's going to shun investment in coal and oil sands companies. So it is growing. Yeah, that's right. And I think that we'll soon see you know, more announcements from Australia and more around the world. So... Um, I think that <clears throat> that absolutely is an unstoppable trend. So anyone who wants to um, protect their financial assets won't be investing in fossil fuels, that's for sure. Um, you're talking a lot of sense um, financially and from the perspective of the survival of the human race. But um, in Australia, wouldn't one of the things that the investors be thinking about are all the government subsidies that go into coal? Well, that's true, and that does make them profitable. But I think, um, you know, one thing that the advocacy movement can do, and I think it's trying to do, is to highlight just what a poor investment those are and what a waste of taxpayers' money it is. I mean, it's a very perverse kind of um, subsidy to be, you know, ploughing money into something that um, is harmful to health and is, is driving climate change. So, yes, if we remove those subsidies, we've had an awful lot more to um, invest in cleaner, renewable energy technologies that, you know, Australia, everybody, I think, understands that Australia has an extraordinary capacity in terms of its renewable energy resources. And, um, you know, it's bewildering, really, why it's taken this long to um, to recognise that and to begin to invest in the industry. And unfortunately, at the moment, we have a very hostile federal government, which is doing its best to destroy the renewable energy sector. But that really is only temporary and even for a you know under a reduced renewable energy target we're going to see that industry bounce back there's um there's just such a huge amount of capacity here and there's still an opportunity even though we're starting late um to be a world leader i mean we've got a a um an amazingly talented workforce um, you know, great research and development capacity and, and lots of people who are already skilled in that industry. Unfortunately, some of those jobs have been lost. I think something over 2,000 jobs have been lost over the last several months in the renewable energy sector, but but they will come back. I mean, it really is an unstoppable trend in that direction. So the quicker Australia gets on that pathway, um, the better off we'll all be. 
What do you think of um, workers' cooperative models such as earth workers as an investment option? Have you been talking to the um, um, investors about those? I haven't actually, but um, I imagine that they have been talking to earth worker, and I, I think that they have. I mean, what I do, what I know of it, I understand it to be a very equitable model, and it's um, it's something that does lead to. Um, distributing the financial benefits from the industry across the community, which I think you know is is um, is a really valuable model, and um, and one of the things that we um, you know capitalism suffers from is that all of the wealth aggregates um, at the sort of high end of the food chain and and doesn't, contrary to popular belief, trickle down. So I think absolutely there's room for those models and they should be encouraged and to be honest I think that they're um, you know emblematic of a, of a global trend towards sort of you know more cooperative models I think we're sort of seeing that with the emergence of things like you know open source software and co-housing and co-working models and that sort of collaborative consumption sort of trend that is emerging I think is not only emerging in response to you know constraints on natural resources but it's it's emerging because people recognize that that's a better and a fairer way to um to live I mean capitalism isn't really you know known for being fair it's you know main drive is profit. And I think one of the really interesting things about renewable energy is that it decentralizes power both literally and um, metaphorically, I guess you'd say. Well, it can do. I mean, if you've got large-scale renewable energy infrastructure, it you know, will likely operate in terms of the owner-operator model as large coal-fired power stations do in that, you know, the ownership will be held by a by a developer and the electricity sold into the grid, and and that's fine. Um, but there's there is that opportunity which doesn't exist from fossil fuel power for it to be either community owned or owned by individuals and for them to generate their own power. And and the mix that is possible from large scale, um, you know, solar and wind installations and and smaller distributed generation that is owned by um, the people who who own the buildings. Um, or who lease, you know, buildings in order to, um, to invest in community um, renewable energy projects. I mean, I think that is incredibly exciting. And, it's well, it's already disrupting the business model of the, the big energy retailers. And, you know, they're already talking about a death spiral and... Um, and the problem of falling energy consumption, well, you know, falling energy consumption is actually what we want. But from the, the um, point of view of the Energy um, Supply Association and those the, those companies, it's, um, it's a problem. But um, it's, it's a problem that they're going to have to increasingly face up to. Yes, they got very upset when they thought there was going to be too much renewable energy. And I thought that was what they were after, but never mind. Um, the, well, exactly. the the um, The Grattan Institute on Monday, in fact, came out with a report that said the, there are hidden costs and renewables are just too costly indeed, which led to an amazing editorial in yesterday's Financial Review, which said, inter alia, rooftop solar is then in the same league as the renewable energy target as a policy that appeals to voters but cuts emissions only at enormous expense. And they also say there is a cross-subsidy due to households with PVs effectively paying much less for round-the-clock access to the grid. Well, that's pretty logical, but your comment on those points? 
Well, look, that's interesting. I mean, I, I have seen that argument, and um, and I think it's true. We haven't always got solar subsidies right. We haven't got renewable energy subsidies right. We haven't got climate and energy policy right at all in Australia. So I don't think that we can point the finger at you know any particular area and say that that's been a failure and, and others haven't. I mean, look at the subsidies that are going to fossil fuel sector. I mean, they're they're, they're far greater and causing far more harm than any um, additional costs that might have arisen in terms of solar. But I think what that Grattan Institute report fails to point out is that that investment in solar has rapidly escalated the fall in prices which has made it more affordable to people and um, and, it, and it's helped to sort of deliver that, um, that innovation revolution which is seeing increases in capacity. So... Yes, there might have been too much paid for solar in the past, but as it is with any technology, you know, when you're investing in it early on, it's going to cost more and um, and that benefits people down the track. So, I mean, the same has happened with any, every technology. The same has happened with mobile phones. So it, let's not consider, you know, solar owners as villains. Um, you know, let's say thanks for contributing to um, reducing, you know, prices and improving the technology for all of us and let's take away the subject from fossil fuels, um, which is where, you know, a lot of harm is being done and a lot of money being wasted. On that last point about subsidies to fossil fuels, the the supporters tend to argue that it's not subsidised. For instance, the Institute of Public Affairs in particular, Alan Moron from there, he he always argues that poor old coal is battling away against these incredible subsidies to the renewable energy um, field. What Your comment on that again? Well, I think that's just a nonsense. I mean, the quantum of, of subsidies that's going to fossil fuels compared to renewable energy, you know, there's there's a huge gap there and that, that's absolutely not the case. And if we remove, you know, if we don't have any subsidies for renewable energy and we remove the subsidies for fossil fuels, renewables such as wind and solar will be, you know, already competitive. So that's not the case. I mean, we can have a renewable energy industry in Australia, a flourishing one, even, you know, without subsidy, if we were to remove those subsidies that create perverse incentives for other energy sources. Um, Fiona, we're talking to Dr Fiona Armstrong, by the way, from the Climate and Health Alliance. But just before we move on to cities, what I want to talk to you about, but also in the in the budget there was a cut of $4.5 million from the budget for the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, yet the authority chair says that, you know, it's, it's quite adequate and they can handle it and they feel they're moving towards saving the reef, etc. Any comments again on, on um, what's happening up there? Sure. Well, just a clarification, not a doctor. I have a master's. Oh, I thought you were. A, Sorry. Okay. Oh, right. We've been calling um, you doctor all morning, but never mind. Okay. Oh, I didn't catch that. Oh, we said it. No. Well, we said it introducing the show at the start of the show. That's all. Never yes. mind. But look, in terms of the Great Barrier Reef, I think that there's a great deal more that needs to be done to save the Great Barrier Reef than sort of local conservation efforts. And I think, um, you know, regardless of. Um, what might be done at the local level and even protecting the reef from um, the dumping of dredge spoil and the, the traffic of coal ships. If we don't cap our global emissions and begin to peak and decline and reduce the warming that is, you know, by and large going into the Earth's oceans, we're going to lose the Great Barrier Reef anyway. So there's many, many things that need to be done and I think that those efforts to protect it at the local level are absolutely vital and there's been an extreme 
extraordinary campaign which has brought international attention to the threat of the reef, one of the wonders of the world, hugely threatened by coal and fossil fuels and global warming. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot more that needs to be done. And yes, I mean, it, it raises the question, doesn't it, I mean, what, what value our natural assets, what value our ecosystems? And I think, you know, when you do start to look at those numbers, and of course, you know, in some ways, it's absurd to even consider putting a price on nature. But, um, you know, the, the value of those assets to us as a species in terms of what they provide in clean air, soil and water, not to mention the sort of, you know, miracle that nature is in, and, and what it provides in um, opportunities for biomimicry and science and, um, you know, it's in the trillions and trillions of dollars. So, um, you know, what are we prepared to do to save it? Yeah, but you're looking at things in a macro, you know, way and capitalism, like individual business investors look at things in a micro way. They look at profit, whereas you're looking at, you know, the good, both economic and social for the entirety of society. Sure. Well, that's where governments come in, don't they? And um, and that's why it's really important that we have laws and regulations that um, that make sure that that government that businesses don't make um, profits at the expense of those natural assets. I was reading a quote from Margaret Thatcher yesterday. I can't remember how it went exactly, but um, you know, it was along the lines that we must make sure that we are not encouraging industry to, um, or that it's not in the interest of industry to pollute to the extent that they um, damage those resources on which they rely. Well, you know, they've well and truly exceeded, um, you know, pollution of air, soil, water and our global atmosphere and um, and, we, and we can't rely on the market to, to self-regulate around those things. So, it's, it, you know, governments need to step in. Fiona, the Climate and Health Alliance, before again we move to cities, could you just tell us something about the alliance itself and what it does and how it was formed, etc.? Yeah, sure. So the Climate and Health Alliance is a coalition of health groups who work together. Um, and, I mean, as our name suggests, we've got a common agenda around concern about the health impacts of climate change, but there's a broader environmental agenda recognising that, you know, climate change constitutes um, one of many environmental threats, but of course it's not just an environmental threat, it's a threat to, you know, every kind of sector and every sphere of society, really. So um, we work together in um, in ad- advocacy for policy and research and uh, we run events, produce publications. We've also um, work in the health sector and um, uh, run a, a, a building a sustainable healthcare network. So we run the Pacific arm of the Global Green and Healthy Hospitals Network, which is a, a group of hospitals and health services around the world who are working together to reduce their environmental footprint and accelerate their uh, transition to low-carbon operations. Hmm. That sounds really cool. Excellent. Well, now let's get to why we we actually asked you one, because we're doing a series about how do you reach, how do you get or attain a sustainable, uh, a healthy urban environment. Have have you got any thoughts on that again? um, What's your definition of what might well be a, a healthy, sustainable urban environment? 
Well, gosh, I mean, I think... It's a small question, I know, but... Uh, it is a small question. Um, a small question with, that, that covers a lot of issues. I think, you know, the urban environment in, influences every aspect of people's health and well-being, really. I mean, where they live, the climate, the housing that they have, who's in the street, the water, you know, the air that they breathe, how they get around. Those are all things that um, influence people's health and well-being. So, you know, the, there's many opportunities for intervention to make sure that our urban environments are, are being designed and developed in ways that maximise those benefits. I think we haven't always done that well, but Melbourne, where I live, has, has got some really great examples of it. But it's about, you know making sure that we've got clean air so that means not burning fossil fuels and using limiting you know vehicle transport and providing um low carbon or um electric public transport and uh, and individual vehicles it's about providing green roofs and shading and walkable streets and and um and and places that encourage people to be out and to be active and there's lots of things that are good about that those um you know getting people active and out in their community not only helps to reduce their risks of some of the lifestyle diseases like cardiovascular disease and obesity and diabetes and and even cancer but it also improves you know social interaction which um which means that our streets and communities um are better from a sort of security point of view hmm. From a health perspective, sorry to go back to coal again, but um, it, it's one of those interesting things in that it has um, a lot of uh, short-term uh, impacts on people's health in the communities where people, such as Newcastle, where people live near coal mines and coal trains and yep. coal ports and all that. Yeah. Yep. Um, what does the Climate and Health Alliance say about that? Well, I mean, we say that there are there is twin reasons to act on coal and reduce our dependence on coal, and one is that burning coal, mining coal, and transporting coal all have local and immediate um, detrimental impacts on human health. So, if you remove that risk to health, you can see immediate improvements, and we've seen it in um, you know many examples in cities where air quality is suddenly improved for a number of reasons, like when they introduced a congestion tax in London, um, respiratory admissions to hospital dropped almost immediately. Um, we saw in the Beijing Olympics when they limited transport in the city during the, when the Olympics were held there that um, air quality improved so suddenly people's cardiovascular status improved. So improving air quality and removing sources of air pollution means that people's health can improve very, very quickly. Um, so those health benefits are available in the short term, but there are also significant benefits to our our health budgets as well, um, because you know you've got people who are not going to the doctor and and not needing their medication and not having to take days off work. But the other benefit, of course, is the climate benefit, and those benefits accrue in the longer term. Mm. And indeed, in cities, um, clearly. You know, cars and trucks, particularly diesel fuel, are a major problem. And in fact, diesel fuel with cars is often promoted now as a health thing. And yet, uh, I think we know the particulates in diesel are much more dangerous than those from petrol, for instance. So um, there's a real need, just for health terms, to get more and more cars off the road and trucks off the road, is there not? Well, to get the cars that are burning those types of fuels, yes. I mean, if we had electric cars oh, yes. that were 
were plug-ins that were being powered by clean renewable energy wouldn't be such a problem so um but absolutely i mean the, 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 suggesting that diesel is a healthy fuel couldn't be further from the truth i mean diesel is a carcinogen mm. it causes cancer it's very dangerous and i um, mean it produces a lot of the very fine particulates that get deep in people's lungs and um, they cross over into the bloodstream and they're associated with heart attack and stroke. So um, very significant health implications. One of the difficult difficulties in tackling air pollution, of course, um, is that very often it's invisible. Um, but it doesn't mean that it isn't deadly. And there are thousands of people who are dying each year in Australia. More people die in Australia each year from air pollution than from the road toll. Um, and yet we don't see the same sort of investment in campaigns around air quality that we see around road safety. But um, if we wanted to make a, a big difference in terms of public health, um, that's what we'd be doing. There was a study, it was an, a Scandinavian study about 10 or 12 years ago that then said that if you lived within, I think it was 300 metres of a major road, you would lose a certain amount of your lifespan um, even back then. Yeah. Which is pretty serious, I would have thought. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, shorter life expectancy, a higher risk of um, of getting respiratory illness and cardiovascular disease and increased risk of cancer. I mean, those those are serious impacts and, um, and they can be improved. I mean, we do have the technology available. There's a lot that we could do in terms of improving our vehicle emission standards in Australia that would help to accelerate the shift to clean vehicles. You know, once it becomes expensive to um, to, to, to produce and, and to sell vehicles that are producing dirty pollution, um, you know, they'll, they'll be, a, a, it'll be far more attractive to, um, to produce and, and to purchase cleaner ones. Yeah, much of the world has far stronger um, emission standards than Australia, does it not? That's right, and there's a lot that we could do. And um, and because our population is largely concentrated in cities, that means that most people in Australia are exposed to harmful air pollution every day. Um, it costs us in the order of, well, one estimate is around $24 billion a year, you know, possibly higher than that. So that's an extraordinary amount of money. Our health systems are already under increasing pressure from a whole range of things. So um, remo removing that, you know, um, reduces those risks and it would help save us lots of money. And, the, you know, the health benefits, as I've already said, are available very quickly. I mean, there the many hundreds, possibly millions of families in Australia whose children suffer from asthma. I think would really welcome the opportunity to reduce that burden for their child or children and for their family from those diseases. There's also evidence, is there, not to show that constant high levels of traffic noise are a major health threat as well, aren't they? Well, I think that's right. I mean, we do become accustomed to those things, but there's certainly, um, you know, almost certainly a, a health toll um, associated with that. Um, I, I, I'm not really an expert though in that area so I don't know that I could say any more than that. Um, uh, some leaders of industry talk about you know the fact that the thing they're providing to the community is jobs and, and that's going to help people's you know social and and their health and their mental health and all that sort of jazz. Um, one of the things I noticed when I was lost in Newcastle is that despite all the coal mining going on there, there were quite actually a lot of um, boarded-up shops. Is it still the same? Mm. 
Yeah, it is. I think here and throughout the Hunter Valley, I think that's a very common theme. And I think that um, increasingly, and certainly when we did a tour, when we released our report in in February and and spoke to communities in Musselbrook and Singleton and Newcastle, a lot of people say that people who work in the coal mining industry don't live in the valley. They don't want to bring their families into an area um, that's got polluted air. So they're driving in and out. So, you know, money's already... Um, being sucked out of the <clears throat> local economy because of the the air pollution and the the, the risks to health. So, um, you know, you'd be creating a much more vibrant economy by investing in an industry that allowed people to live in a healthy environment. Yeah, um, and speaking of healthy environment, the I've got a headline here. I won't go into them, but lend leases eighteen billion urban regeneration is one, and there's another one where. A Singapore-listed development has won approval for a, this is in Melbourne, for a 350 million residential hotel complex um, and the government's endorsed smaller apartments than um, it would be the normal standard. Now, I just, for, for a dog kennel or well, for humans? Maybe. I think they're going to put human <laughs> beings in them. But but uh, it, it's, it's a problem, I think, isn't it, when developers tend to be your urban planners. They, they What they want, they tend to get, and it's not necessarily the best thing for... Um, the urban environment or urban sustainability. Well, this is going yeah. back to the issue of the macro and the micro and having government intervention. Mm. What you were talking well, about. Well, that's right. Yeah, and it is really unfortunate to see those kinds of developments being approved and there's a much more um, much more that government could be doing in terms of stepping in and, and, and having, you know, cross-sectoral... Um, conversations and collaboration. We should not be making decisions in planning without considering the implications for health, for example. And um, and the same goes for policy in any sector. But we have this absurd kind of scenario in um, in industry and in, and in the assignment of government portfolios where it's um, it's all very siloed and, and it's a very rare event when people get together and actually talk about you know, what might be accomplished by different um, uh, different government portfolios working together. And I think around energy and transport and health, there's huge opportunities for achieving benefits and planning as well, um, for achieving benefits that are going to deliver, you know, the economic um, profit that developers seek, but they're going to achieve the amenity and the, the lifestyle and the quality of life that people desire and governments you know, could could find that that's a, a, a popular decision as well. So I think, you know, there's a great deal more that could be done. But um, and whilst you know, there's obviously um, as our population increases and important important to consider medium and and high density living, high density living to the extent that you're putting people in. Um, you know, indoor environments that are going to be harmful to their health, that are going to have a poor psychological impact, that are going to have bad quality air. You know, indoor air pollution is a big killer as well. You know, those those are things that have, you know, risks and consequences for people immediately and, and they cost us all down the track. So there's a lot more that could be done by working together. And I know there's lots of academics who are are working towards doing that um, we need to see better engagement from government and industry in doing the same. Yeah, how do we get to that though? That's always the problem, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I guess it's that sort of, you know, shift towards collaboration and cooperation. And I think, you know, there is sort of institutes springing up at universities and to a certain extent sort of business groupings who are, are beginning to kind of wrestle with these problems. And I think in, this, um, sorry to in, interrupt. in a way, as, sorry. In this plan, who's um, collaborating with who? I'm, you're talking about there has to be a greater move towards cooperation and collaboration between who? Oh, well, I think between governments and um, and governments, industry, academia and the community. I mean, we're seeing decisions made without um, proper consultation with communities and without, um, you know, recognition of the evidence um, in relation to the impacts on other sectors. So I think, you know, better community consultation, um, better use of the evidence that's available to people um, and, and, and a stronger role of government in, um, in ensuring that decisions are being made in the public interest. I mean, to me, it doesn't sound that hard. It sounds like that's the type of thing that we elect our government leaders to do. So I think that we should be increasingly um, expecting and demanding that that's what they do. You've got examples, though, of, of the government, um, you know, working in a politically ideological way, which um, totally contradicts their own reports on what would be the best way to do something. For example, the Northern Territory intervention. You know, it, it just totally went against the government's own reports on the best way to deal with Indigenous health problems. I mean, how do, how do you deal with that sort of thing when, when people just aren't working in the best interest of the community? And also, you know, the fact that industry tends to work in the opposite to what the interest of the community is. Well, not all industry does, but um, but but certainly, you know, there are there are powerful examples of industry that do that. I mean, I don't think I have the answers to um, to all of those things. I mean, they they're complex, difficult, social, you know, political human problems but I, I think you know one answer is that we do live in a uh, what remains a reasonably well-functioning democracy and I think um, those people who care about those issues and people in civil society and I think we are increasingly seeing that of working towards trying to encourage people to engage in civic discussion a lot more I mean we have got a lot of forces working against us in terms of ownership of the media and um, belligerent governments and, um, and and corrupt industries often. But I think, um, you know, there are signs of life in terms of, you know, you know national political environment, for example, the, um, the, the, the growth in independence, you know, whether or not we like them, the, um, the campaigns that have led to um, the election of people like Cathy McGowan shows that, you know, there is an increasing appetite for people saying we're not going to just settle for... Um, you know, the, the, the line that's being spun by the two major parties, we actually want to put people in the parliament who are going to represent our interests. And I think as the sort of, you know, increasing pressures of, of, of climate change and resource depletion and risks to, um, you know, those fundamentals of clean air, soil and water, we'll see more kind of responses like we've seen in response to the sort of rapid... Um, exploration and, and mining of coal seam gas and communities just um, declaring that they've had enough. So I think really it's up to all of us if we care about making a better society and we want to have people in our parliaments who are going to make good decisions that will put the right people there and hold them accountable when, when they get there.
Mm. Yeah, the um, just to finish up, we've only got a minute left. But the other another issue, I suppose, you'd be interested in is this campaign to take away the tax deductibility from environmental groups. I notice the chairman of the group, Alex Hawke, Liberal MP, says the problem. What the he's, he raises the problem. They abuse the law by raising funds to run political campaigns, such as the battle to shut down the coal industry. So. It's fairly outrageous that environmental groups would actually take up environmental issues, I would have thought. <laughs> well, I think it seems to be fairly well understood that the you know impetus for that campaign, such as it is to um, to take DGR status away from environmental groups, is very much driven by industry, who do see that environmental groups are being extraordinarily effective in drawing attention to the harm that they do. Um, and engaging in advocacy is an important and legitimate role for you know groups in civil society to um, to undertake. So we would all be you know much the worse if we didn't have um, community you know um, faith um, environmental groups, health groups advocating for the public interest. You know they, these are groups who who don't have a vested interest other than the protection of health and well-being or in nature for the benefit of all of us. They're um, they're not about a profit, and I think um, it's extraordinarily important that we make sure that those groups continue to be able to operate and to raise funds to support the work that they do. Okay, thanks, Fiona. Look, um, that's a that's a positive note to finish on, which this program doesn't like. We like to be up on a really depressing note, but we, we managed to make it. It's, but Fiona, look, thanks for your time today and uh, good luck today talking thanks to that sir. group at Newcastle. No worries. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Fiona Armstrong, there, who's from the Climate and Health Alliance. And um, we have run out of time, Corey. Yes, we have. Next, um, next week's the first Saturday and first Wednesday. It's transport. transport. And the week after, we've got to get money. Money, money, money. We so save money. up your pennies and yeah. Um, yeah. pledge them to City Limits yeah. so you can get some yeah. independent radio. Uh, so, yeah, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855am, maybe on 3cr.org.au. And we're going to go out with a track. This is um, Dr. Zeus with Witch Pardesian. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au 3cr.org.au